In a recent column in the Irish Times, columnist Jackie Jones quoted a global review carried out by experts in the University of New South Wales, Australia, involving 38 major studies. It found that more than one third of patients nearing the end of life received non-beneficial treatments in acute hospitals. Up to 77% received non-beneficial antibiotics, cardiovascular, digestive and endocrine treatments, dialysis, radiotherapy, unnecessary tests and useless chemotherapy. Non-beneficial tests were performed on almost half of patients with do not resuscitate orders and half of older people died in intensive care units when they would have been better off at home. Most of the non-beneficial treatments were performed because relatives insisted on them. The authors concluded that the use of non-beneficial treatments in acute hospitals is widespread. So, in modern times, has our determination to avoid death and our childlike belief in the power of modern medicine turned death into an unnecessarily brutal and expensive affair? In studio, Gina Menzies is a lecturer in medical ethics in the Royal College of Surgeons. Regina McQuillan is chairperson of the Irish Association of Palliative Care. And Father Michael Cusack is a redemptorist priest in Dundalk. And first this morning, we're going to talk to Seamus O'Mahony. He's a consultant gastroenterologist in Cork and he's author of a book, The way we die now. Good morning, Seamus. Good morning, Sarah. Seamus, what do you think is wrong with the way we die now? My book was written from the perspective of a physician working in an acute general hospital. And I think most people don't quite realise that half of all deaths take place in that kind of environment. Most people, if you ask them where they would like to die, will say either at home or failing that in a hospice. But that only happens to a minority of people, about less than a third. So half of all deaths take place in my kind of environment. And acute hospitals are very good at dealing with acute problems. But I, I don't think it's the environment where you would choose to spend your last days. So I, I wrote from that uh, perspective. I think too many people are dying in the wrong environment, which is in an acute hospital, and we have to think of better ways for people to, and better environments for people to end their their days. Um, In your book, you've described situations, I think it's most typically with either very elderly people, you know, who maybe get pneumonia towards the end of their life, and I think it may also happen, you know, with cancer patients where... You know, it's clear that the end is coming, but the families want extreme measures. Um, You know, as a doctor, have you had experience where you're trying to negotiate with families and persuade them this is futile? Yes, I have. Um, Now, to put this in perspective, most families um, are um, actually very reasonable. And when uh, you take the time to... uh, explain exactly what's going on, the overwhelming majority of them will generally accept the advice that you give. However, um, there is a minority, and I stress it's a relatively small minority of families who cannot um, accept um, what what you're telling them. Now, luckily, this is a very small number of of, uh, individual cases, uh, and I stress that the overwhelming majority of families are uh, understanding mm-hmm. and reasonable and accepting, but you will have a, a minority of cases where they simply cannot accept, and they will go to all sorts of lengths, um, including you know involvement of solicitors and 
so on, and, and it can become incredibly difficult for all concerned. And you argue that some of this is due to the wildly unrealistic expectations we have of medicine, yeah. that we think medicine can cure all. Yeah, we, 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 we've, uh, as a society and as a culture, we have, as, I, as you say, a wildly unrealistic expectation uh, of what modern medicine can do. And modern medicine can do an awful lot, but it has its limitations. Um, and um, most of the deaths that I deal with would be in very elderly people at the end of a very long uh, chronic uh, disease uh, where, you know, medicine, uh, technological medicine, has very uh, little to, to offer. Um, I think medicine itself is partly to blame because we've created this climate of belief that, you know, uh, medicine is getting bigger and better and brighter all the time and that, uh, you know, we're making all these advances and, you know, these new drugs have come out that are, you know, game-changing and everything is is fantastic. But, you know, I I think medicine has now reached a sort of, after its glory period in the mid-20th century, we've now reached a, a sort of a new phase where... I don't think there are these huge advances anymore, and I think we need to enter a new phase of what I would call thoughtfulness in uh, treating our patients. And say, so actually, just yesterday I was at the funeral of, of an elderly man, mm. and he'd had a good innings, as, yeah. as they might say. But, you know, when the final illness did come, he just couldn't be cared for at home. What he really needed was nursing care. Yes. Now, thankfully, he was brought into hospital and it was at most two weeks. You know, it yep. was a brief enough illness. But where should he have been? I don't think it would have been yeah. possible to care for him at home. Yeah, um, I think um, this idea that everybody should die at home is a little bit misguided. Mm. It's, it, it, it is appropriate for some people. But it's not appropriate for others, including the case that you mentioned. There are some illnesses um, which give rise to problems and complications and demands that simply cannot be met at home. Um, And I think this is where hospice care comes in very much. Um, uh, Now, the acute hospital may be the default uh, environment because... Nationally, we have a relative shortage of access to hospice beds, and I think this is why very often people end their lives in acute hospitals. Uh, But acute hospitals with the best will in the world cannot replicate the type of environment that you would find uh, in a hospice. Uh, But you're right, there are many different types of illnesses that are not suitable for end-of-life care in the home environment. And then just finally... You know, when when you make a decision that perhaps futile, a further treatment is futile, what's the balance between treatment and withdrawal of care, perhaps bordering then on euthanasia? You know, so not assisting yeah. dying, but if you perhaps yeah. withdraw treatment or withdraw fluids, or th- you know, is that yeah. kind of thing done? Yeah, yes. Um there are there there are different. It, it, it's a spectrum. It's not a it's not a sort of a binary argument. So, let's say for example, you have a very elderly person with uh, dementia, who comes in from a nursing home, let's say, with a pneumonia. Um, you may give 
what I would call limited treatment, which would be, let's say, antibiotics and intravenous fluids. And you might discuss with the family that you're not going to escalate care. In other words, if they get worse, if their breathing fails, that you're not going to put them in the intensive care unit and put them on a breathing machine and so on, and that you're not going to resuscitate them in the event of their heart uh, stopping. So you're offering a degree of care, uh, but not if I can use the term, the full menu. Mm. And that's appropriate in that situation. And so th- this, this perception has arisen that because you're uh, you know, not going to resuscitate in the event of a cardiac arrest, that somehow you're carrying out euthanasia is incorrect. You're offering what is appropriate care for that person. Um, you know, uh, cardiopulmonary resuscitation in a 90-year-old person is simply not going to work and is simply going to ensure that their, their last seconds on this earth are futile and undignified. So you're, you're offering compassionate and sensible and appropriate care. If people deteriorate further from that, um, then, yes, it may be a pro- it, it may, you, you may withdraw further treatment, you may stop the intravenous fluids and the antibiotics, and by and large, uh, people will, uh, will, will slip uh, peacefully away. So it's, it's, it's a sort of a, a spectrum of treatment. It's not an all or none sort of thing. It's certainly not euthanasia. In most cases, it's simply allowing nature to take its course. So what do you want to see changed you know, are you saying you want families to look at this differently or do you think mm. uh, treatment in hospitals needs to be changed yeah. or nursing homes need to perhaps stop sending yeah. the dying to hospitals? Where yeah. do you want to see the there's, change? There's a whole load of things. I mean, if you take the example of the nursing home people coming into um, to hospital, um, that is an ongoing um, issue. Um, and there are many reasons for this. Um, you know, um, I think the nursing homes are terrified of HICWA. I think the, very often the doctors who are called out to see uh, sick patients in nursing homes are not their regular doctors. So the default setting is to send the patient into the emergency department of an acute hospital. There's a lot of work going on in my own um, area uh, looking at um, introducing advanced directives in nursing homes and a pilot study done in UCC has shown a dramatic reduction uh, in um, admissions to hospital from nursing homes where advanced directives have been introduced. So that's one thing we could look at. I think generally we need to change the whole culture of modern medicine uh, so that all doctors, not just palliative care doctors, but all doctors working in acute hospitals view end-of-life care, if I can use that phrase, as part of their job and as part of their their mission. I think um, modern medicine has become what some people call a culture of excess. I'm arguing let's go back to uh, basic principles of compassion, kindness, and common sense above all else. I think uh, for uh, people outside the professions, I think for patients and their families, have a discussion before there's a crisis. Have a discussion amongst families uh, before there's some crisis event. Very often people have to make these 
awful and difficult decisions at a moment of crisis. Have the discussion long before the crisis takes place. So you have some idea of an elderly parent's uh, wishes, what they would like. Have the discussion before the crisis. Okay, Seamus O'Mahony, many thanks for joining me this morning. And we'll go on now to have that very discussion. Um, Father Michael Cusack, when we were talking about doing the show, we were thinking about the kind of people who are present at death. So that's why we thought of you. How have you seen dying change in Ireland? Um, Good morning. Um, I'm I'm actually very interested in listening to to Seamus speaking there because the words that were that were playing out in my head were compassion, kindness, and common sense, and I think they they really are the the the, the hallmarks of good care of anybody, whether they be they be in the fullness of life or in in sickness or on the road um, into into death. Um, I. I really think that there's an awful lot of common sense in what in what um, Seamus has said. I did get my back went up when I heard you use the word euthanasia, and I thought, "Oh my God, have have I swung completely in in, in a wrong direction?" But I I I, I pulled back very quickly, realizing that it's simply a word yeah. because what we see more often than not is is very good care, and I think uh, my experience more often than not uh, where 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 it's possible to be with people, and I mean, so often death comes without any warning. So we have no way of, of, of preparing or, or sitting with families or, or trying to plan things out. But I think when we, when we honestly face up to the death or the impending death of a loved one, one thing we need to do is try to, try to keep it very dignified. Um, just about three weeks ago now, I was um, there present with the family for really the last four or five days of the death of a woman who whose only wish was to die at home. Um, she had had a protracted um, um, time with Alzheimer's that then ultimately she died of cancer. But her husband wanted to be uh, true to her wishes. And it was the most beautiful, um, dignified, loving, sad uh, emotional experience that you could witness. A real time of grace, I'll have to say, for me and for everyone that was there. The hospice people were absolutely fantastic. Her husband, Jerry, and her son uh, was there with her right right throughout. And it was protracted, you know, it was, it was tiring, but there was something beautiful about it. Uh, and then it left me thinking, as, as Seamus was talking about one of my own men, because in the monastery I have several people, you know, who we've had to accompany um, into eternal life and into the next stage of death death or into the next stage of life. One man in particular comes to mind who I always promise them, look at, insofar as I can do something, I will. In other words, if you will always be with us here at home unless the situation is such that that it's not advisable for me. So I know one particular man, Father Tom Faulkner, and Tom had a very long uh, battle with, with cancer, beautifully cared for, very brave. But in the last two weeks, I could no longer offer the best care. And so we found an alternative, which it wasn't a hospital, but it was into a nursing facility, a, a convent actually locally, uh, where there were nurses in place and he died with all the dignity and all the love, albeit not in the place that he wanted to die. But these aren't choices that are that are there for and us. And what about the wider um, philosophical issue, the Freudian one perhaps, of our fear of death and our death denial? Um, do you think over the years Ireland has changed from a place where maybe through poverty and 
the misery of life. You know, death was so prevalent. It was perhaps more accepted. And now, perhaps in a more secular time, in a belief in science, we think we can fight this thing off. Mm -hmm. What changes do you see there? I think the the biggest change is really uh, we need to be asking whose need has been met in most of these scenarios. You know, very often family members want to keep loved ones alive because they can't just bear the thoughts of being without somebody. You know, I have a a friend in South Africa, a Dominican priest. His mother lived to be 108. You know, he he wrote me an email after she died saying, you know, he wasn't prepared for her death. (laughs) And I thought, my God, above, you know, I'm sure it was a deep, deep loss because the longer he lived with her, the more dependent he became. But at at 108, I mean, you're not expecting her to to sign up for the Olympics, really. And she had she had she had lived a wonderfully dignified life on her own until she was 105 and then only the last few years needing care but we're never ready. I wondered though as well maybe do people feel guilty that if they say to a doctor okay it's time let them go that because medicine does provide so many miracles for us that they feel like it is a kind of a philosophical euthanasia that they are saying, fine, we well, give up. No, you know? yeah, not really. I wouldn't interpret it that way. Yeah. I think love, love is, is demanding. And, and part of the love deal that we have with each other, if we're to truly love one another, we have to see beyond what's our own need. You know, it's about, it's about being life-giving. And if that life-giving means letting your loved one go into what we believe to be eternal life, then, I mean, it's a painful part of of that love process. But you continue to love by letting go. And I think there is a right time for that. A lot of people are never, ever ready for it. I I, I wouldn't like to be sitting with some of the families that Seamus might be talking about who want to plan things, because so often families are not singing off the same hymn sheet. And Mm. all it takes is one member to make the others feel bad, you know. And I think we we have to sort of know that my main motive or my purest intention is to be compassionate, kind and loving. And that loving at times and very often is very painful, but it means letting go in a dignified way. Uh, Gina Menzies, you know, so many doctors um, like Seamus O'Mahony and other essays we've discussed uh, before will say that doctors don't want to die the way they see their patients die. Um, you know, the aggressive interventions. So why is there that gap? Do well, you still I mean, think? yes, I, I've, I've read a number of those articles and I think it's in a way self-evident that many doctors know exactly what may happen if you uh, approach sort of the end of life in a very aggressive, um, medicalised way. I think I've read Seamus's book, so thank you, Seamus, for that. And I think, you know, his primary thesis is sort of to somehow demedicalize death. I think part of the real problem is that doctors know so much more, I suppose, because of their training and background than the ordinary member of the public who maybe, you know, know know a lot about many things, but maybe not about health and medicine. Um, And I think one of the problems is, well, I think there's a few issues. End of life now has become more problematic because of the capacity of medicine and science to extend life. I mean, I often think in a strange way that many people who are alive today would have be, would be dead if we went back 50 years yeah. because they would have just died naturally. Now people are living to be extraordinary ages. I mean, there's some data that a female child in the Western world, in the developed world, um, born after the year 2000, has a 50-50 chance of reaching 100 and it's fine if you reach 100 and I sort of say to myself I can still swing a tennis racket or something akin to that um, but that is actually facing all of us and I think many uh, in the public in a way I think what Seamus is also saying that 
people don't understand that there is a sense that, I mean, my mum would have been an example of it, that there's a, a pill for every ill. She assumed that there was always a remedy for whatever and she really died of old age. And you talked before, I remember, about the perception of what, say, something like um, uh, cardiovascular intervention can do at the end of life, TV versus real life. Exactly, what yes. What was that yeah. again? I mean, Seamus refers to uh, an article and I've read one myself about um, a sort of one of the universities in America some years ago they did a survey and over a year they tracked three what I call medical soaps like ER, Grey's Anatomy and another one and they sort of they, they looked at the success rate of cardiovascular or resuscitation on those on those in those soaps and the rate was like close to eighty percent. Whereas Regina and medics will know that the rate is maybe between five and fifteen and that's also if you're in a hospital. And then the other thing that the soaps don't show is, you know, the extreme end of cardiovascular resuscitation, which can include sort of, you know, breaking the chest bones. And it's not something relatives would want to witness. But it's where people learn about medical medicine and science and very often it is from the the medical soaps which sort of sends them in one direction. So I think a lot of what Seamus was saying there was that the need for people to understand and of course the real I think problem there is time. I mean if you're in a busy emergency department and you have a number of people coming in from nursing homes who are I suppose the phrase would be actively dying the time to talk to, to particularly to their relatives is difficult and it, and it's not that it doesn't happen because I've seen it happen and it does. People are extraordinarily, shame, Michael said, caring and compassionate but it's not the time to have that conversation and I suppose I can give a, an example of that. My, my mum was in a nursing home and she was in her mid-90s and um, she hadn't got a chronic condition as such. She really couldn't. She had very bad arthritis. She couldn't be cared for. And we couldn't afford 24-7 home support. But she was in a very good nursing home. We were all very happy about it. But one weekend on my way to visit her, um, I got a call saying she's had a turn. Uh, and we're calling the ambulance. And um, I stopped the car and... Uh, I made a call to say, look, I'm nearly there. Will you just wait till I come? And before I I started the car again, I rang her GP and and she said, look, try and keep her there and I will come and see her when my practice is finished. So I went up and she was (laughs) she was sitting up in bed. Fine. I said, why are they saying she's had? But they knew something else was happening. Just to, to cut a long story short, the GP then arrived and said, look, she'll probably die over the weekend. But she said, um, I'll be here and we'll keep her here. She wasn't at home, but she was in a nursing home to transit her from there to an emergency department would have been cruel and inhuman. And thanks for that GP who knew her well and had looked after all her life. So that we stopped it and we were all agreed uh, that that was the right thing to do for her. That was in her best interest. And uh, she died sort of peacefully two days later. She slipped into unconsciousness. We were all there. Um, it, was, it was sad. It was tough. You know, you're never ready for it. Um, and yet, you know, it's going to happen. So, you know, I think we, we, we spared her having a, a less comfortable death. So, Regina McQuillan, um, the, a lot of this comes up during the winter when you've got old now I know if Roseanne Kenny from Tilda was here she would give out to me for saying the elderly and old people and it's not fair to stigmatise people like that but as people reach perhaps the end of their lives that they are admitted to emergency care and they are left on trolleys for 12 or 15 hours and what good is achieved in that? I think we need to separate out the different problems here because the fact that people are 12 and 15 hours on trolleys is not the fault of the nursing homes or of the frail. 
That is because of the health service being overrun. So it's not the fault of either the nursing homes or the frail. And I'm probably going to use the word the frail rather than the elderly because sometimes the dying are young, but they're frail and they die. You know, and they're by definition, they've got a chronic illness or progressive illness and they're dying from it. But if you are a nursing home nurse and somebody you know who is doing very well and like very frail but managing very well and gets an acute change, an unexpected change, you want, if you're doing your best for your patient, see, can somebody fix this? And the idea is sometimes then it may not be possible to fix this unless you go to hospital. So you have to try and think, is it possible to fix this? If somebody is in a nursing home and unfortunately has a fall and breaks their hip, that's a very painful condition. So even though you might be very frail, it might be better to go to a nursing home. I suppose from a nursing home to a hospital. So I think the thing is, is it's not necessarily saying that all nursing home patients should never go to a hospital or that all the frail should never go to hospital. But it's like, why should people go to hospital and what happens when they get there? Because if somebody comes in and if somebody who's frail living at home or a nursing home, an acute change happens and it's unexpected and they go to an acute hospital, ideally then if you're going to say, OK, this is a very bad stroke from which they won't recover, then if you can then at that point say, they're not going to recover from this, what are we going to do? And what I would then be looking to see is, had this person themselves, had they ever had an advanced care plan? Had they ever expressed a wish themselves about what it is they would want? So in the first instance, I'm always, if people can't engage in the conversation at the time, it's finding out what wishes they would have expressed before. And then using that then as a guide for your treatment or your understanding of what you want to do. But I do think we need to be really careful. And I work in Beaumont Hospital as well as in St. Francis Hospice. Yes, some people do come in from nursing homes, but some of them need to come in from nursing homes and they need to be in an acute hospital. But do some of them don't? Do you see that? I think we do see that, but it is not... Sometimes when you read, when you read the media reports of that, it's as if the entire problem is because of the nursing homes and that is not the case. So we're not victim-blaming. Yeah, yeah. And, but I do think there, ten, there is that sort of tendency and then it tends to be talking about people who are frail, who are old, who are demented. And again, these are people who deserve care. Because I do think it's really important that when you're talking about what treatment people get, and I think as Seamus Martin said, there is this thing about that you, are, you might be withdrawing levels of treatment. You're not ever withdrawing care because you still need to be caring for people. Mm. But you're trying to decide what level of treatment might be inter- appropriate for them. And I think that's really important because I think the, and that I think is sometimes why families, sometimes patients when they're well and sometimes families are concerned about the idea of stopping things because they fear abandonment. And you reported, you quoted there on um, the, the study that was published in the paper saying that people having unnecessary, people with DNAs having unnecessary blood tests. Mm. I do not attempt resuscitation order. It means if this person's breathing stops or their heart stops, you shouldn't try to resuscitate them. It doesn't mean you stop everything else. So you do need to now have, I think, we need to have more subtle discussions with patients and with the families about what I would call levels of care or ceilings of care rather than being this all or nothing. Because mm. when you say this, not for ESOS, sometimes patients and families and staff believe not for ESOS abandonment. Mm-hmm. And I think we need to make sure that it's not, so somebody may not be for intensive care, they may not be for attempted resuscitation, but they might be for IV fluids or antibiotics. So I frequently talk with the patient in the hospice because people come into the hospice and go home again. I told a patient in the hospital to come in and say, well, if you've got a chest infection, what do you want us to do? And that might be antibiotic by mouth or it might be antibiotic by injection. 
Uh, Greg says, my doctor says they are all trained to be mechanics and they need training on death and how to care and empathise, how to address the fears of the patient. And a listener in Dublin says, wouldn't it be a good idea to have a scheme set up where family members are given proper training to care for the elderly parents? Yeah, it's funny how people just end up in this situation and suddenly I mean, they have to I, figure I, out I, how to I, just I, lift someone. I, I you know? think, sort of, as Seamus said, Gina Menzies, yeah, yeah. An end of life has now become much more... I suppose, ethically challenging for the simple reason that we sort of he's already said that medicine and science has pushed out the boundaries and that it can do an awful lot that it couldn't have done in the past and thereby sort of hangs a tail. Therefore, all these ethical dilemmas arrive. But you were talking there about conversations just before the interval. And um, I don't know if you've come across the notion of death cafes, because I know what you're saying, Sarah, that these conversations are difficult. But I think, you know, the hospice, I think, in the UK initiated, I think some hospice movements here have sort of set out a framework where people would go and have a cup of coffee and discuss it and, you know, break down that kind of taboo. And I think there is a taboo about discussing it. And then once I think you embark on that, I don't think it is so bad because death is part of life. The problem with those conversations is it's all very well in the abstract because I can sit here and say, I don't want aggressive measures and I want my peaceful death at home. Just load me up with the morphine and Mm -hmm. off I go. But then when it comes to it... One likes to cling on yeah. to whatever little bit of life is, is left. Father Michael Cusack, how do people react when you come into hospitals? And perhaps particularly, do you offer to anoint people now or do they ask to be anointed? Or Because that's a big benchmark, isn't it? Sometimes, yeah. yeah. Um, I suppose, yeah, going into hospitals, you, you go in to visit and then you'd be, I'd be trusting my own wisdom to know whether I should or I shouldn't, you know. And you, you, you'd have a fair sense of the people if you know them as church going. You could offer if you thought, well, this is something that the person might appreciate. There are others don't appreciate it at all, you know, and or don't feel the need. You can have family members who are saying, oh, I need to get mammy anointed. In that case, you'd say, well, look, at, I'd even, I always try and water, water down the experience say we'll just have a little prayer now you know and do it so so that there's somehow uh, there's something peaceful about about the setting but you, you're relying on on a fair deal of common sense and and good judgment um people do appreciate it it's amazing i mean i mean we we would have the the strange scenario at times of being called out to where somebody's already died or died tragically and you know, in that scenario, there's no point in anointing because the anointing is for the dying rather than for the dead. And but you do it somehow. I was just going to sort of make it's like a slight theological point um, because you use the word anointing and so, so did Father, Father Michael. But I actually like the the, the the slight change in in language, and that is called the sacrament of the sick. Yeah. And I know quite a few people who would have had that as a blessing, because I think anointing is very much acquainted with um, the last, the end. We're going to bless mm-hmm. you before you go. Yeah. Whereas I think many people value what you're saying is that it is a kind of a, a blessing, a peaceful blessing. I, I must say one of the things that does upset me, this is kind of a theological thing, is that I know um, some lovely people who work in hospitals as chaplains. And I think most of the chaplains in hospitals are actually uh, non-ordained. And what I think is really kind of theologically an issue is that they have walked with the patient through their illness, etc., etc. And then it comes to maybe the, the sacrament of the sick and they're pulled out. And with respect, uh, a strange priest may come in and, and perform the sacrament of, of the sick. Now, 
com- that seems to be completely illogical that the person who's if you like journeyed with you yeah. uh, quite often on a daily basis perhaps brought you Eucharist um, and at a time when you say yes I would like this blessing um, and they can't do it I think and it's Mike, a minor challenge, but I think the church could change that overnight. Michael, do you mm. see then people who perhaps either were very religious all their lives and then when it comes to it, panic and get resentful and don't want to see it? Or then the converse, no atheists in a foxhole, maybe do. <laughs> 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 you know, the, the conversions at the last. What yeah, do you see? Absolutely. I mean, I mean, you would be amazed with the number of clergy, you know, that I have been by their beds at men that I would have admired for their prayerfulness and known that they were I mean in that sense so much closer to God than I'll ever be and yet in a complete state of fear and anxiety and upset when it comes to to that stage in life where you're thinking God this man is going to give me the most fantastic witness to passing peacefully you know and suddenly I'm thrown into a complete panic and thinking I must get down on my knees and start start on the path of prayer rather than and the practical approach. how do you approach. comfort someone like that? It's very, very difficult. I mean, I'm, I'm, I have one of my own community at the moment, actually, in, in hospital. But now I, I just can't get through. You know, you'd love to hand over to somebody um, the gift of peace, because it really is. When, when I was looking at the title for the programme today, A Good Death, yeah. I was thinking the only good death is a peaceful death, really. You know, um, we're never ready to re- really ready to die. But peace is what you try to get. And you get peace, I think. Uh, it's it's a gift that you get into your own mind and heart. And it's give, it's helped. It's very much helped by those around you. Yes, Reg- Regina, what, what do you see? Because I imagine hospice staff, they've got to be the experts in this and, and trying to comfort the people who don't want to be in the hospice. Yeah, and I think what we try to do, the hospital part of care point of view, is that you're we're starting from a point that we're recognising that people have a, have a progressive fatal illness. We're also recognising that sometimes people are involved with palliative care services for a period of time and then they stabilise and we discharge them and then they come back again. So it's not a case of it's hospice inevitably going to death in a very short period of time. But I think what we're trying to do is when you're trying to help I think in palliative care you're very much focused on what the person's problems are rather than the underlying illness. Because mm. somebody else has diagnosed the underlying illness, somebody else is managing it, but you're trying to deal with the person's problems. So whether that's about their physical problems like pain or sickness or fears, you're trying to figure out what it is and how can you help. I remember reading mm. once that the living expect a lot from the dying. Mm, that they want the dying to be graceful and to make them feel better. And I think there's some of the, so for instance, like the Elizabeth Kubler-Ross phases of dying, which comes at acceptance. Now, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross herself, I think, wrote back on the idea of acceptance. She moved, she then considered acceptance as, as in, recognising that you're dying, not accepting it gracefully. Because I think sometimes people think you should, the dying should be accepting it gracefully. Whereas the dying not the time they're raging against the dying of the night. They don't want to die. Yeah, I've known people who are angry. Yeah, mm-hmm. and a lot of people are angry. And it can be angry because they feel there may be people who had a very strong faith and feel their faith has let them down. They may be angry because they are 37 and leaving three children behind them. They might be angry because they think, why have I got lung cancer when I never smoked? Mm. So there's a whole range of reasons. So what you're trying to do is help people. So if somebody's afraid of dying, what is it that they're afraid of? Now, I don't have any answers for the after-death side of things. 
Um, saw Hamlet last night, the undiscovered country from whom born no traveller returns. But if it is things, will I choke? Will I be in severe pain? What will happen? I can deal with and talk about that. And you hope then you're able to sort of give people some idea and understanding and reassurance of what you're going to be able to do and help that. I think Seamus O'Mahony has made a good point as well. And I think one of your um, callers may have done this too. I think it's really important that all healthcare staff have a good understanding of palliative care principles. And what are the principles? What so is the, princi- the difference? Yes. So the, the principles are, the, it's about symptom control, so managing discomfort, whether it's pain or sickness or things like that. It's about good communication, so being able to have, to be able to talk to people and figure out what is, is it on their mind. It's about having good understanding of the role of a patient within a family and the sort of the impact that that might have. It's understanding some of the ethical and professional issues around looking after people in healthcare. The HSE has a, what's called the palliative care competency framework. So you can look, Google it and look it up. And it's sort of outlined what all staff should know about palliative care. And then there's increasing levels of knowledge depending on where you work. So if you're a cancer nurse, you need to know more because cancer nurses more often are looking after people than, say, a plastic surgery nurse. You know, there's, yeah. there's, there's, so, And if you're a GP, you would need to know less maybe than a geriatrician about what palliative care might be because geriatricians again more often look after the Is there a sense in the hospice community that the hospitals are getting things wrong? No, I think there's a sense in most hospices most most hospice consultants work in hospitals as well. So a big and then also a big part of hospice role is what you call supporting the generalists. So I'm a specialist in palliative Mm. care. Other people who look after people with life-limiting illnesses, they might be specialists in oncology, they might be specialists in geriatrics, but from the point of view of palliative care, they're generalists, you know, it's part of their general skills. So part, a big part of my role is supporting generalists. Mm. And the other big group of generalists are nursing homes. Because there are people who are living, most people in nursing homes probably die within three years. So most nursing homes are looking after frail people. And a big part then of the role of specialist palliative cares and hospice centres is informal support, informal education, consult services where you see people and help the staff, as well as providing formal education. And there's quite a number of projects now which have been run in different places. Seamus mentioned UCC running a project. There's one big one running in Sligo. There's one running in the North East, like the Community Palliative Care Service there working with nursing homes. I work at St Francis Hospice. We've run a diff- number of different programmes. So what you're trying to do is support the generalists, whether they're in hospital or hospice, to try and improve the care for people who are living with life-limiting illness. Jennifer says, delighted to hear Gina Menzies mention death cafes. Good to hear someone's happy with the conversation. They are happening all over Ireland with great success and are non-directive social Mm. events at which participants discuss mortality, celebrate life and eat cake. Most important, to learn more, go to deathcafe.com. Well, we just will then. And we'll tweet that after the show. And she says it's quality of life, not quality. Um, Gina, what did you want to Well, uh, well there were two say. things. One, uh, uh, sort of aside with, with Seamus's book, there's another wonderful book that, I've, that I read about a year ago, but I've noticed it's now, it's actually way at the top of the bestsellers, uh, When Breath Becomes Air by a, a, a neurosurgeon called Paul Calanthi. I think I've got the name right. But it is really fascinating and beautifully written. Uh, he really had a background in the, in the humanities, but he was 36, a neurosurgeon in the States, ascending, if you like, the career ladder at a rate of knots, you know, utterly committed to his career. Um, and at 36, he's diagnosed with terminal cancer, terminal cancer. And 
there is that sense of initial anger and shock and disbelief and uh, he dies within a year at 37 so the book kind of is, is is his journey and it's beautifully written and very honest and you know a good a good way to sort of get an insight is there another issue and the last time you're on the show was more what we were talking about end of life care is extremely expensive beginning of life and end of life mm. is where big money spent is there any sense that this is a public health and resources issue well i i think it is i think i think if you know if there is almost it used the word unethical aggressive practices taking place which are consuming vast uh, resources which are medically Unnecessary. I so, mean, like pointless chemotherapy you, in the last weeks of life. Or well, something. I mean, I, I again, I think it is very much a case by case basis. I mean, there is a spectrum, so I don't think you can blanketly say, you know, yes or no. But I think you know, good medical practitioners who uh, who have the understanding that Regina was talking about, you know, will will. And there's another interesting kind of concept that has entered the the field of, I suppose, in the way ethics of of nudge. Um, uh, and there's a whole kind of literature about it now. I mean, it, it, it arrived in the area of behavioural economics. I mean, a simple example is, you know, the way you set out a supermarket, you're nudging people to make decisions. Now, I think good medical practitioners will want to nudge their patients to make the decision that is best for them. And then you end up with this kind of philosophical, ethical debate, you know, paternalism or autonomy. It's not often it's, one or the other. It's so interesting. It's trying yeah. to, to set it out to help people because people don't, there are various kind of models of, you know, doctor-patient relationships and uh, and it's not black and white. Um, you have to be able to help your patient in the way that's appropriate for them. I'm actually reading The Ethics of Influence mm. at the moment by Kat Sinstein, mm. which is precisely on that. Um, Michael Cusack, sometimes I wonder, as we have become a wealthier country, which is good, and a lot of the misery and suffering of life is gone, which is good, <laughs> that nevertheless we have become distant from some of life's events and simple things like nursing someone when they are sick or even when they die, that traditions like laying out of the dead are kind of gone now in a lot of areas and the undertaker does it. Is there a case that the further we get away from suffering and dying, the less able we are to cope with it? Uh, well, I'm I'm very familiar with death and and with the dying, so it doesn't you know it doesn't frighten me at uh, at all, or, or I don't distance myself because I'm dr- drawn ever closer to it, uh, whether I want to or not. Yeah. You know, even in an aging religious community, you know, it's always there, and uh, somehow in in religious life we learn to to deal with death in the very same way as we do with the rising day, the next day. You know. Yeah, but regular people don't. Yeah, no, regular people don't. But and a lot of people who have zero familiarity with with things churchy. And now, you know, are totally afraid around around the whole concept of death and dying. But I think they're also hugely comforted by what they give because the absolute truth is, and I know this of my ministry anyway, is that irrespective of who the the, the dead person is or the dying person, they get the same level of care and attention uh, from from me or from from the church, from their undertaker. Very often in very difficult circumstances, you know, of of family uh, division and 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 awkwardness and hurt. And I also see with the hospital 
hospice and, and the palliative care teams, they get a fantastic service uh, offered to them. And that last, the case I began with, talking about the man and his wife, I mean, I know um, Jerry, would, uh, he, he's a great advocate in, in the whole movement of, of um, uh, Alzheimer's care through the Birches in Dundalk, but uh, Jerry would have said, he said, one thing I want to highlight by my wife's death is she got everything she wanted. She wanted to die at home. And he, he said the system, which is very broken in many ways, you know, the HSE system, he said it didn't fail me at all. Every last detail, he said, was was just top notch in terms of palliative care, nursing care, home support. Now, that isn't always the case. And very often I know I know the broken system we're working with. But the good parts, when things are work well here, they work fantastically well. And I suppose we, we're, we're never going to be prepared for dying. Uh, uh, was it Woody Allen said that uh, I'm not afraid of death. I just don't want to be there when it happens. Mm. I mean, we're all a bit there. <laughs> yeah. But somehow there's something beautiful about dying as well or can be. I mean, regrettably, more often than not, it's sudden death, it's tragic death, it's, you know, it's death that takes us far too soon. A a great friend of mine, just before Christmas, her mother died in her arms. She said to me afterwards, she said, you know, it was the most gentle, beautiful thing. And then she put in a little swear word and she says, but 10 years too early or 20 years too early, you know. But she recognised the actual softness of her death. It was one gentle breath, like as if she went to sleep. So, Regina, what prevents people dying at home if that's where they want to die? I think, first of all, the well want to die at home and sometimes the sick don't because the sick recognise the amount of care they might need. So they might recognise that A, they might need expertise or B, they don't want to burden their family. But So there's many sick people who do want to die at home. But I think we need to have that openness that people might want to change their mind. So I think it's really an important thing to think about. So very, most people, not everyone, but most people make a will. And very often you make a will when some big life event happens, like you get married or in a civil partnership or you buy a house. And the solicitor then says, I think you should make a will. Nowadays, a lot of sister, solicitors are also saying, I think you should do an enduring power of attorney. So an enduring power of attorney is appointing somebody else to make decisions about you when you're not able to make your decisions for yourself. But the enduring power of attorney covers everything except health care. But I think that possibly at a point when you're making a will or enduring power of attorney and when you're changing those, you should be then thinking, well, what about my health? And I think that's when, see, the solicitor advises about the will and the enduring power of attorney. Maybe then you need to talk to your GP about your health. What are, though, the legal status of those? Like, if I say Mm. I don't want X, Y and Z to happen Mm. to me and then I end up incapacitated, can my husband or my parents come along and say, feck that, all aggressive measures? If you make a decision when you're competent about treatment you wouldn't want when you're not competent, so long as the evidence that you had, it was an informed decision. So you randomly saying, I'd hate to live in a wheelchair when you know nothing about it, is not necessarily mm-hmm. a good decision. Yeah. Whereas you say, I have no people living in wheelchairs. I value my independence. If it is sort of disability meant I had to be in a wheelchair always, I wouldn't want it. So it looks that you've made a considered decision rather than a flippant decision. Gina. There yeah. will be oh, changing. Sorry, just, and I just yeah. say, yeah. there's new legislation coming through. It's called the Assisted Decision Making Capacity Act. That will change. And I think when that comes through, there will be information that needs to be provided to the public to solicitors and to healthcare workers, making giving greater clarity. But at the moment, if you make a decision now, 
and then you're in that in that situation in the future, that would be respected. Yep. But can I just say, that's yeah. why I think it's good to be able to make this decision with a healthcare worker. So you're actually making an informed decision because sometimes people are making, you wouldn't, you'd seldom write a will without getting a solicitor's advice. I think you shouldn't be writing a future care plan without a healthcare yeah. worker's advice. Gina. Yeah, yeah. I, um, I mean, it, it comes under, I suppose, the the, the idea of an advanced directive. And, and my brother, who died of motor neuron, he was very clear um, what he wanted and what he didn't want. And he had an advanced directive, which was signed, if you like, by his neurologist and by his solicitor. So there was no doubt about it, and it was made when he was competent. And, ha- and what and happened w- in the end then? Well, well, he he didn't. He, you know, he didn't want resuscitation. He didn't want any excess treatment. He didn't want to be put on a breathing machine. I mean. Just because there are people who possibly are, are listening who have relatives with motor neuron, it is a very rare disease. He actually did die very peacefully, peacefully at home on the morning when he was meant to go to hospice care. And, um, and you know, he, and he you... actually knew. He said, "It's time," and he he did actually slip away. I mean, it's it's not a nice condition, but he was very clear. He didn't want extravagant, you know, aggressive treatment. And and he was he was young when he died. I mean, he was he was he was only fifty six. Um, but he wanted, he did want to die at home, and at least he did have that, have that wish. But if you like, his advance directive was very clear. It was very much almost in the category of being legal because it was signed by his solicitor and by his neurologist. So there was no doubt about it, and every and we knew about it. Like the family knew about it, which is important. So I think if it is recorded, as Regina said, you know, if it's clear. The difficulties arrive when there's a lack of clarity and somebody says, I think he or she wanted this or, or not. And then the doctor's in a more difficult position and they ultimately do have to make the decision. But where a patient has expressed their wishes ahead of time very clearly and it is recorded, that's the most important thing, it's documented, then it is like an advanced uh, consent pro- process. They have consented to X or they've consented not to have X. Right. Um, Gina Menzies, thanks a million for that. Um, Michael Cusack and Regina McQuillan. Now look, last week's programme on A Good Birth got a huge reaction. Um, They're still uh, downloading podcasts. You can go to newstalk.com if you want to hear back to it. But we were asked to mention Why Not Home, a screening of a movie about it. That's on Monday evening in the Graduate Medical School in the University of Limerick if you want to take a look at that. That's it for today. Stephen Jordan produced, Aidan McCavey Research, Marion Kennedy was in sound and thank you for for listening.